Romans 8, 1 to 11. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are, which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is life, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritual minded, spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if, this, but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the spirit that dwelleth in you. You may be seated. morning. It's good to be here. Welcome everyone. See you here, Matt, Flick. Um, good to see all the visitors and everyone who's here this morning. It's been really good to be here this morning already and um, I almost forgot we got Thanksgiving coming on Thursday and I'm not preaching a sermon on Thanksgiving but there was so much said already this morning about what there is to be thankful for and I was thinking about um, Glenn's devotion um, and what we're blessed with, and then our Sunday school lesson, um, just being thankful that we as Gentiles can be a part of the gospel or can have part in the gospel. And then, of course, Lancho's topic, um, so thankful that God walks with us, that we can wait on him and he will be there with us the whole time. What a blessing. Thank you for that, Lancho. This morning, I want to talk about one other blessing that we have to be very thankful for, and that's the blessing of the gospel of grace. And I'll be honest with you, I started this, and I started collecting information, and all of a sudden, I don't know why this is, but by 7.30 this morning, I realized I have way too much information. If you're going to be able to get home in time to eat lunch, I'd better figure out a way of cutting this short. So I'm going to split um, a message this morning in two parts, and I'll have to leave the second part for um, some other time. Um, my message this morning was going to be living in the light. Uh, let me pull this up. Living in the light of God's grace. Um, but I think we're going to start with the first part of that, legalism or grace, and we're going to just talk a lot. I'm going to talk quite a bit about legalism, but hopefully we're going to end with just a couple um, stories on God's grace, because I don't think we want to miss that part. I don't want to let off that part at all. It's something so valuable to each one of us who are part of Christ's 
um, family. And understanding of grace, well, maybe I'll just step back a second. And, and I, I've been thinking about this topic for a while because um, I know um, the devil constantly is trying to find, take us away from the gospel of grace. And he'll do it in many ways. He don't really care how he does it. Um, he'll do it in a legalistic way where we think we can receive our salvation by our works. Or he'll do it in another word that I'm going to talk about, a free grace or free gospel, free grace way, which I think is the other ditch where we take this approach that um, as a Christian, we can, because grace is free, we can do whatever we want. Um, and I think true grace is found in that middle road um, that I want to talk about um, in our messages in the next two Sundays or the next two times to talk. I want to start out with this. An understanding of grace shouldn't be something just for intellectuals, okay? Um, I know in our Sunday school lesson we had Paul preaching to some of the greatest intellectuals of the day at that time, um, and he gave his, the gospel of grace according to Paul, um, and he spoke to intellectuals. But this thing of grace, I want to make clear before some of you fall asleep already, um, should be very basic and simple. And I know so often when I heard the word grace, I just kind of got confused and I tuned out eventually and I just kind of left it go. And then we're going to talk about words like legalistic and antinomianism, in which we really start saying, boy, this is way um, more than I want to think about on a Sunday morning. So I'm going to try to keep it basic and simple because the, ide uh, the idea of grace should be something that all of us can attain to. Christ really wanted it to be that way. One of the bases of grace is understanding that being a Christian is primarily a matter of the heart. Being right with God. Okay? And how do we become right with God? God extended grace, and because of his redemptive work, our hearts have changed, and we extend grace to others. Everything flows from a heart relationship with God, who transforms our hearts when we became saved. Jesus constantly was reminding the Jewish leaders of their unclean hearts. This isn't too complicated. This is something we teach our through two, three-year-olds already. We need to have a good heart, right? Um, something we need to remember when we're 70 and 80 and, well, 50 um, for sure, that it's about our heart, okay? The idea of grace is a heart change. Jesus constantly was reminding the Jewish leaders of their unclean hearts. They were seemingly seeking after God, but in the reality, they were self-seeking, they didn't see themselves as sinners in need of a Savior. They saw themselves as good people because they kept the law. That's what two-year-olds do, right? Think they're pretty good. It's their brother that's bad or sister. That's what 50-year-olds do too without grace, without understanding of grace. Jesus told them if they would be as careful about cleaning their hearts as cleaning their hands, which that was a big deal back then and quite Honestly, it's a big deal today, too, right? They would, they would be what they, ought, what they should be. They were as careful about cleaning their hand, hearts as their hands. They would be what they should be. Here's a question we should ask ourselves today. Do we care as much about keeping our hearts clean as we do care about keeping our bodies clean? Think of COVID, for example, maybe. Or maybe should I ask keeping our German homes neat and clean? Or our businesses and finances, or maybe even ask, do we care as much about keeping our heart clean as we care about keeping our church clean? And I know it all goes together. I'm not trying to um, 
keep saying one or the other. But I think it's very important that we remember our hearts need to be right with God. We can't have a clean outer shell and have a, or try to clean our outer shell and not work on our hearts. It's so easy to focus on the external and neglect the internal. In fact, that's exactly what legalism is. A focus on the external and not the internal. So, real simple. For some of us, basic legalism is a focus on outside, looking good outside, and forgetting what needs to be inside. This morning, I'd like to start with the question, what is legalism? And... Let me step back. And understanding grace shouldn't be something that just for the intellectual, but for understanding for the children. So what is legalism? Um, we'll talk about that in a bit here. This question started for me when I was listening to a man, who a converted Jew. And he made the comment that Judaism is a very legalistic religion. Like, what do you mean by that? I didn't think of it that way. I thought we as Christians are the ones that are often legalistic. And I realized that basically all religions are legalistic. Only Christianity focuses on the heart. Um, only Christianity does the Son of God die in the place of a wretched sinner like me and, and extend grace to his children, taking away the need for us to be saved by our works. All the religions, works, is the center of their gospel. Christianity, grace, is the center of our gospel. Like it says in Romans 5.8, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It got me thinking, what is grace and what is legalism? If that is the center of our gospel, or center of, of who we are in our religion, compared to um, Buddhist, Judea, Judaism, um, you name all the other religions where works are the most important thing, let's make sure we understand what the gospel of grace is. This morning I'd like to look at three simple words, grace, legalism, and antinomianism. You may be thinking... These sound complicated, but we'll dive into them. I'll try to keep them as simple and basic as possible. So what's legalism? The word legalism is just, is not a word found in the Bible, first of all. Okay? It's not found in the Bible. It's a concept or an attitude found in the Bible and often talked about by Jesus because he knew the sin of legalism would keep Christians away from understanding a very important understanding of, of grace. So Jesus constantly was hammering the Pharisees and everyone else about their legalistic about their about legalism well, he didn't use the word legalism but about their hearts and the reason he was constantly I wonder why it used to bother me that Jesus was so hard on the Pharisees I was like aren't you a little too hard on them um, isn't that that about enough now shouldn't you back off a little bit but the reason he did that was for an example to us not to focus on legalism but to remind us that there's something better and that's the grace. It's the gospel of grace. The word legalism is not found in the Bible. It's a concept and attitude in the Bible often talked about by Jesus because he knew the sin of legalism would keep Christians away from understanding a very important understanding of grace. Do we understand legalism today? Do we understand grace? I'd like to answer the question of what legalism by reading a story. Okay? And I think... 
we're all prepped for this because we've been reading this uh, about this in our Sunday school lesson. Let me read this story. There was a young man who had a very rich and godly heritage. His parents prayed for him before he was born, as evidenced by the name they chose him, which meant prayed for. From his birth, his parents brought him up according to the strictest standards they knew of and paid for him to have the best Christian education they could offer him. Every rule that could be followed, he obeyed. Every standard that could be adopted, he embraced. He was a model citizen, a staunch right-wing conservative. He wouldn't associate with anyone who believed differently and didn't let peer pressure of the world affect him. In fact, he was so zealous in his beliefs that he felt that anyone who believed differently was a problem to God and he problem to the God that he loved and worshipped. He took it personally and made it his personal duty and goal in life to stop the spread of what he believed as fallible beliefs. But then he had a life-changing encounter with grace, and his world was turned upside down. He left everything behind. He let go of his own righteousness so that he could embrace the grace of Christ. He let go of everything but Je- he let go of everything but Jesus. Then spent the rest of his life zealously trying to convince the world of the wonder of God's grace. And who was that? We all know Paul the Apostle, who we've been studying about and reading about. That's grace that we need to get. And because Paul understood grace in his life and how much it transformed his life, what did it do to Paul? What became of Paul at that point? He became an incredible missionary of the gospel of grace. And that's what we read about in Acts, right? That's the story he's telling in our today's Sunday school lesson to Festus and to Agrippa. That's the story he told before that. It was the story of the change in his life from being a legalistic, getting, doing it all right, but missing the most important thing, the heart change that he needed to make. And when he made that heart change, he understood grace. One of the reasons we don't understand grace is because our heart hasn't, we haven't been repentant of what um, we ha- how we have lived. Listen to what Paul writes years later in Romans 3 after understanding what it means to be saved. This is the same Paul who was legalistic Paul who understood grace and changed. Verse 27 um, in Romans 3. Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Legalism is an attempt to gain favor with God or to impress our fellow man by doing certain things or avoiding other things without regards to the condition of our heart. That's not of us, is it? Fortunately, I look at my life. How many times do I do things to impress people around us? Um, Impress people is an attempt to gain favor with God or to impress our fellow man by doing certain things or avoiding other things without regard to the condition of our heart. That's legalism. Jesus hates legalism because it doesn't deal with the condition of my heart. Okay? And again, that's just, that's so important. Teacher, two-year-olds that, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, and we continue to learn our hearts need to be right. Not just look right, act right, but have a heart change. At the root of legalism is a sin of pride because the legalistic, there you go, 
at the root of legalism is the sin of pride. Because the legalist thinks that he is able to come right with God by himself or by his own good deeds. That's the heart of legalism. Number three, legalism denies human depravity. How bad we really are. And exalts human ability. How good we really think we are. Which is basically comes down to pride. Look at that again. Legalism denies human... Well, let's just make it simple. Legalism denies that I'm bad, right? And exalts how good I am. And we know that is the core of all human depravity, right? See a two-year-old, three-year-old? They think they're pretty good. Um, And yet, like all of us, we are desperately wicked. Fourth thing, legalism is the conviction that law-keeping is the ground... Sorry, legalism is the conviction that law-keeping is the ground of our acceptance with God. Us keeping the law makes God for us and not against us. A legalist will, a legalist will say, um, let me read that again. So you may think, how can I get God to be for me and not against me? The legalist tries to find a way of making God for him, not against him. <clears throat> Listen to these verses in Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And the fifth thing, Jesus hates legalism because it misses his reason for coming to earth. And that is to transform us from the inside out. The reason most people, reason Jesus hated it so much is that's why he came to earth. That's why he died. His, full re- his reason to come was to transform our hearts. And when a legalist says, I can do it myself, he's saying what? He's saying the cross doesn't matter. He's saying I don't need it. It's a slam in Jesus' face to think that I am good enough of my own. And I know most of us here would say, no, I'm not good enough. I understand that. And yet, do we really understand that we are not good enough? We need Christ. We need repentance. We need to continually repent. And the last one, Jesus preached to the Pharisees and to us today about legalism and gives us five woes for legalism. I'm just going to go over those right now. And if you want to open your Bibles up to Luke 11, this is the passage that I struggle with um, because I thought that Jesus is just being a little hard on the Pharisees. I think maybe one reason why I struggled with this is maybe I've been a little bit too much like the Pharisees. And they don't really like to hear Jesus talking about them. But we're going to just go over five woes. Now, I know he gives seven here. But five woes of, for the Pharisees. The five woes of legalism. And I'm just going to say, let's just forget the word Pharisees. And let's just put our name in there if we have to. Um, and say the five woes of legalism. In Luke 11, we can find these five woes. And we'll start with the first one. Legalism majors and minors and minors in majors. Now that sounds tongue-twisting, kind of a little hard to um, comprehend. What's he mean by majors and minors? Okay, he majors, a legalist majors in little things. Okay, that's a big deal to a legalist. Um, then the big things he lets go. Now what we know the big things are typically our heart um, and, and what needs a change in heart. 
Here's a good example of this. The Pharisees were meticulous about giving. And it gives this example here um, in Luke 11, verses 37 to 41. They were meticulous about giving a, tithe, a tenth to God to the degree that they even tithed their spices. How do you like that? So your wife gets spices at the um, grocery store and then take 10% of that spices and make sure you give it back to God somehow. That's how meticulous they were about their tithing, doing everything right. Now, I am not here to say we shouldn't do everything right. But it should come from a different heart than a legalistic heart. But they were, they were stuck on making sure they didn't tithe wrong in any way. Well, Jesus upheld tithing, and he still upholds tithing. And I wouldn't um, say there's anything wrong with tithing. It's a good thing. We should be upholding it. He condemned them for neglecting the most important part of the law. Justice and love and the love of God. And so the Pharisee would cleverly tell even his parents that they couldn't help them with their finance, finances because their money was devoted to God. How do you like that? They tie the, a tenth of their spices, but they can't help their parents out. And Jesus saying, something wrong with that picture. You know, it's obvious for us, right? But do we get caught in the same thing? None of us would tie 10% of our spices and then forget to take care of our parents, would we? No. I don't think so. But do we get caught in, in majoring in minors and minoring in majors? Here's an example. Here's, and I know this, this one I read, and I, first of all read it, I kind of swallowed a little bit. And, um, but do you know, um, here's an example that I'm just going to give us, and you can take this one or leave it. Do you know anything, most of you have probably heard of John Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, Campbell Morgan, Martin Lloyd-Jones, C.S. Lewis. What did all five of those men have in common? Now, you say, well, they're all great preachers, right, of the gospel? Another thing they had in common, they all smoked. Say, and I remember when I found out Charles Spurgeon smoked, I was like, I can't read his stuff anymore. You may ask the question is, Man, how can they be Christians and smoke? How can they be preachers and smoke? And I struggle with that. But think about this a little bit. Don't get me wrong. Smoking, if somebody smokes, they should quit now. It's wrong. It's unhealthy. It's bad. I'm glad our church doesn't allow smoking. Um, and expect people to change that when they come to our church. But just for example, why is... These, all, these men, but when, when you start thinking about that, and you say, well, that's not possible. They could be good preachers. These men lived in a time when um, they didn't think there was anything wrong with smoking. They didn't realize it was harmful to your body. They didn't realize that um, that actually is a bad thing. And smoking at that time was about like drinking coffee today. And Nate says we should quit that too here. Um, so you get the point a little bit. I'm not trying, to, not trying to downplay our problem with smoking. I know, and I think we live in a generation where smoking is not accepted anymore. We understand it's wrong. Maybe we don't live in that generation about coffee yet. Um, but I think often a legalist will get caught up in the majors, of, in, in the minors, and forget the majors, okay? Um, and again, I'm not saying somebody should come in here and say we should be allow smoking. It's a good thing. No, not at all. But you see how often we get caught up sometimes and, and we look at, so we see somebody smoking automatically. Um, anyway, that's maybe one example. Next one. Legalism focuses on self-glory. 
not glorifying God. And verse 43, woe of sitting in the front seat. What do the Pharisees do? They want to sit up in the front. They want to, all the glory and all the... None of us are that way. We all want to sit in the back seat, right? Um, no, we are. We all want... We're, we tend to be that way. Um, Jesus condemned the Pharisees because they loved the front seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplace. They wanted everybody to like them. Oh, does that sound familiar? They loved to have people notice how important they were. It made them feel good to be noticed as someone important. But pride was at the root of it. Pride is the heart of legalism. Humility is at the heart of Christianity. A legalist can take pride in himself and his attainments because he's looking at outward things that matter, not at issues of heart. He doesn't acknowledge that the heart is just as sinful as the, that his heart is as sinful as a robber or a prostitute or a murderer. And we say, stop, I'm not that bad. Let me ask you a question. If you were reared in the same circumstance as some of the prostitutes or thieves, where would you be? If, think, think of this. If you were reared in the circumstance or had encountered the problems in life they had faced, we would probably have engaged in some of the same behaviors because we have the same heart of lust and greed. A legalist sees himself as a notch above those sinners. He has attained a righteous life for his own hard work and discipline. Is that us? Have we ever thought, and maybe this is a better illustration, someone who just doesn't have the work ethic we have. Well, they just didn't, and, and you think, why can't they get some discipline in their life? What's wrong with them? Well, how disciplined, how hard of a worker would you be if you wouldn't have lived in the home you live in? Or how often do you look at somebody and say, well, that person can't be a good Christian because they just don't have discipline. And yet you grew up in a home that taught you discipline, and you have discipline, well, at least some, right? Um, and then you start condemning people who don't have it. But you don't realize that you've been given that. And that's where legalists is. What we've been given, we think, well, I'm better than other people. This is something good for me. Um, it's something I'm good at. And yet, we don't realize it was a gift of God. And a legalist will take what he has and take pride in it and credit himself rather than credit God. Legalists subtly corrupt others. The woes when burying their dead in verse 44. So Jesus gets the Pharisees and says, um, talks about, um, in verse 44, about the Jews or about burying their dead. He compares the Pharisees to concealed tombs. Now, what's he talking about there? If a Jew came in contact with a tomb or a dead body, he was ceremonially unclean for seven days. And he's just given a word picture here. The picture behind these ceremonial laws was that sin leads to death and that the contamination of sin and death spreads to others if it is not dealt with. So Jesus is telling the Pharisees, listen, he said... You guys are worried about when you bury the dead, you have to give yourself seven days because you're unclean. And he's talking about the idea of you're basically contaminated. And the reason for those laws was that they contaminate other people. And then Jesus goes on to say, he says, that's how legalism is. You do everything. Legalism eventually contaminates the people in your church. The charge... Um, 
The application of the sin of legalism contaminates other people. It turns off unbelievers and keeps them from the truth of the gospel because they can see the hypocrisy of legalists. This is a problem and can't be found in our church. Legalism will turn other people off in our church. Many people have left church because of a legalist who the hypocrisy of the legalist turned them off. We have to watch that. And and basically, Jesus is saying, can't have it in your church. Got to get rid of it. Third thing, it burdens others with peripheral commandments. And you say, what's that word? Um, Peripheral basically means something that's out there. Um, Legalism burdens others with with peripheral commandments or commandments that are not as important. Basically, a lot of different roles. Um, 45, 45 to 53. The lawyers had taken the commandments of Scripture and had multiplied them into a hundred little adaptions. But like lawyers in every age, they also came up with legal loopholes. So what the, what the Pharisees were doing is they were coming up with all kinds of rules and they were finding ways of uh, getting, getting by with these rules. Um, like, for example, on the Sabbath day, the lawyers said, they determined that you could only travel a thousand yards from your home. But if a rope was tied across the end of the street, the end of the street became his residence, and he could go a thousand yards beyond that. Or if before the Sabbath day, a man left at a given point enough of food for two meals, that point could technically become his residence, and he could go a thousand yards beyond that. Does that sound complicated? So the Pharisees were continuing to make all these loopholes and all these interesting rules um, that had no meaning. Um, and you say, well, we wouldn't do that in our church, would we? Have rules that have no meaning? I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, and, or in our churches. Here's an example maybe I can give. Um, in the Sabbath law, in the Old Testament Sabbath laws were given for our benefit, even today. We have Sabbath day where we can rest. We have a Sabbath day where we choose one day, um, a, a day a week where we can rest. Christians probably err by throwing these Sabbath laws away, right? A lot of Christians today say it doesn't matter anymore. So they just say, we're not going to, we don't need to deal with the Sabbath. Um, But God gave that for a reason. Now the problem is, sometimes we err in having all these things. Okay, we're not going to do this on Sunday, we're not going to do this on Sunday, we're not going to do this on Sunday. And we forget the attitude about why we don't work on Sunday. Um... So legalists will try to use all these little rules and we forget what is at the heart of it. Fifth one, it dodges personal applications of God's holiness but pretends to outwardly honor it. Legalists dodge um, in verses 54, 54 and 55. The religious leaders of Jesus' day did not submit their lives personally to the message of the Old Testament prophets, but they built monuments for the Old Testament prophets um, trying to honor them. Outwardly, they act as if they honored the prophet, but in the, inwardly, they didn't repent of their sins. A legalist don't apply God's holiness to their hearts. They just put on an outward show of honoring it. Honestly, legalists are often rather unholy. You just don't see it on the outside. They are good in covering up their unholiness. So, but most of all, we'll get back. Let's go back to this. Um, most of us understand and know we are saved by grace alone, but does that really, what does that really look like? To keep it very simple, a legalist is a works-based gospel, but God is looking for a heart-based gospel, a gospel that is from the heart. Religion apart from God is always trying to fix the outer man to look good to other men. 
but to neglect the fact that the Lord looks at our heart. I think I'm going to move right on to what is the next question. What is antinomianism? And just real quickly, to keep it simple, some call this free grace, but the literal definition is against or opposed to the law. So antinomianism is just free grace, thinking I can do whatever I want, the opposite of a legalist, or the other ditch of the legalist. Um, Romans 6.15, what's Romans say? What does Paul say about free grace? Very clearly. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. So the opposite ditch is saying, I can do whatever I want if I'm a Christian. Is that true? Is that what Paul says? No. He says, God forbid. He says, if we're under the grace, we're not going to keep sinning. Right? Um, so, <clears throat> so important that we understand that. Was Jesus against the Old Testament and the law? Question for us. Was Jesus against the Old Testament? No, absolutely not. There's a rabbi, a Messianic Jew states that question this way. There is a fallacy that Jesus taught against the law of Moses. This lie emerged largely as a result of an overemphasis of being under the age of grace. However, Jesus never taught against the law of Moses. He followed and taught the law. While Jesus redefined the law and taught how to rightly interpret it, he lived and died as an observant Jew in Israel. Jesus said, Do, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And he goes on to say, Some believe that fulfill means to bring to conclusion or to complete. And he says, It's more than that. Fulfill, one of the best ways to think of fulfill is just split that word in half or split. Separate the word and say, fill full. So Jesus came not only to fulfill, but to fill full, to make it completely full, um, to bring to fullness the gospel. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth shall pass away, one jot or one tittle shall not no wise pass from this law. Jesus did not take away the law, but he wrote it in our hearts, like it says in Jeremiah 31, um, pointing to, to the New Testament. With the law... Written in our hearts and with the Holy Spirit, Jesus expects us to go beyond the written law. This is what we see in the Sermon on the Mount. Exactly what the Anabaptists taught. They said that the Reformers didn't go far enough in their belief to completely follow Jesus. Um, and it needs to be a practical living of the Sermon on the Mount. But the question for us today is, are we still living that way? Where we have to become like the Pharisees, where it becomes more of an outer performance or an inner thing? We are not called to be legalists or to live with free grace, but to live in the light of grace. But in order to do this, we need to understand grace. And that's where um, time is coming to the end. But what is grace? Here's the important thing. We have the legalists on one side. We have the free grace movement on the other side. In the middle is what true grace is. And we need an understanding of that. Um, and I think... As you grow, as I grow, I continue to understand grace more and more. And I see some of the older men in the front of this church that have a better understanding of grace than me. As I grow as a Christian, I want to understand grace better than I ever understood it before. But what is this grace thing? Um, I'm not going to get into it. But maybe I'll just read a couple stories um, to end with um, about grace. I'm just going to read... What Paul Washer says, and I think I will just close with this story about grace. And he just gives the grace story of what Jesus did for us. 
And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, if we can grasp this, what Jesus did in our lives, it will make a total difference. Legalism won't even be a part of us anymore. If we can be like Paul who understand what, understood what Jesus wanted to do in his heart and his life, legalism was thrown out. It wasn't a part of his life anymore. Um, so I think it's so important that we grasp the understanding of grace. And I'm just going to read um, the story of grace by Paul Washer. He says it this way. You see, the greatest problem in the Bible is if God is good, he can't forgive you. If God is righteous and holy, he can't forgive you. The answer is what? It's found in Jesus Christ. And this is what so many people don't understand about the cross. God in his righteousness condemns man. Every man, every one of us, everyone who has ever walked the planet since Adam, condemned in our sins, and all of the religion, all of the church going, everything else that you might want to add to the gospel, it is not going to help you one bit. You're condemned. To be in heaven, you must be perfect. You got that? Anybody here perfect? Have perfect righteousness, and none of us have that. And God cannot do it any other way because he is righteous. He cannot sweep your sins in a basket under the rug. So God in his righteousness condemns you and me and all, and all of humanity. And then God in his love becomes a man. And he lives, in the life, he lives the life you cannot live. The life that I could not live. Not only is he avoiding sin, but at the same time he is living a life of perfect righteousness. Not only avoiding the negative, but he is also doing the positive. A perfect righteous life. And then the Son of God goes to Calvary. And on Calvary he dies. But now here's the problem. We're not saved from our sins because the Romans beat up Jesus and killed him. We are saved from our sins because when he was on the tree, all of your sins was imputed to him. It's important to understand. We're saved from our sins not because he was beat up by the Romans, but when he was on the tree, all of our sins that God put on, um, all, all of the sins that keep us from heaven was put on Jesus Christ on the cross. If I stood in the midst of that most horribly wicked... If I stood in the midst of the most horribly wicked people in the massive den of iniquity, and I stood there and I was translated there right now to that place, the only place that separates me in the eyes of God from them, the wicked, is the cross of Calvary, where Jesus died for my sins. If you added any of your supposed... Good works to what to that would that be helpful in saving you from your sins? Do you think there is any way we are good enough outside the grace of God to get to heaven and deal with the holy, fair, righteous judge? Do we really think we have been a good person? Really? Good enough to take any of our good works and stand before God and risk all of eternity for it? The only answer to our chances of getting into heaven is accepting the free gift of grace by Jesus Christ. The story of our redemption is the greatest story of grace. Now, that's just a, um, one version of the story of grace, and maybe we'll get into that more um, the next time. I just want to close with the verses in um, Romans 8. There's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death.
For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Let's kneel together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you um, with thoughts, with the thoughts of you and what you've done for us, and we're overwhelmed with those thoughts this Thanksgiving season, and we thank you so much um, for your free gift of grace. Um, God, help us not to spur that in our legalism and our self-righteousness and our thinking that we are um, good enough to do that of our own. Help us remember daily what you've done for us and live our life that way and live our life in the light of your grace and walk in the light of your grace and be excited about your grace and share your grace to others. Um, Help us to um, do like Paul did, um, to be sold out for you because of what you did for him. Help us to to be challenged with that every day of our life. And thank you so much for your grace and help and what you've done in our lives. Thank you for the group here. Pray for a week ahead of us as we think of um, the Thanksgiving season. Help us be a thankful people and a grateful people for your gifts and what you've done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.